This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. Public health experts are telling political leaders to keep Canada's economy and society closed to contain COVID-19. But doing so comes at a massive price. As other countries, the United States in particular, debate the costs and benefits of continued social distancing, I'll speak to a former premier, a former top public servant, and a former MP about how governments and politicians will approach the trade-offs of a lengthy lockdown and how they'll try to reboot the economy afterward. Law in the Time of COVID-19 is brought to you by McCarthy Tetro. We're exploring the law and policy of pandemic response and looking at how governments, organizations, and individuals are managing the impact and meeting the moment. This episode explores a topic of interest to everyone, not just lawyers. It contains neither legal information nor legal advice. Here's episode 11, Open and Shut. On March 23rd, the Lieutenant Governor of Texas, sorry, the Lieutenant Governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, gave an interview on the Fox News Channel. He said he was a week away from turning 70, and he suggested that he and his fellow seniors would be willing to risk their lives to minimize the impact of COVID-19 on the American economy and American society. In his words, quote, No one reached out to me and said, as a senior citizen, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren? And if that is the exchange, I'm all in. My message is that let's get back to work. Let's get back to living. Let's be smart about it. And those of us who are 70 plus will take care of ourselves, but don't sacrifice the country. End quote. The comments drew a quick backlash at the time. And as I record this, more than three weeks later, nobody has yet called Mr. Patrick's raise. But the chips remain on the table, and the question hasn't gone away. Would older Americans, or older Canadians for that matter, or people with asthma, or people with compromised immune systems, really be willing to die to avoid economic catastrophe? And more importantly, Should the rest of us ever even contemplate risking their health for economic or social reasons? As the COVID-19 crisis continues to progress, it'll be increasingly difficult to avoid the question of whether the economic and social cost of the public health response is justified. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has given his answer. Speaking to the House of Commons on April 11th, he said, and I'm quoting, Our job as Canadians is to uphold the dignity and sanctity of every single human life, whether they be rich or poor, young or old, ailing or healthy. We must be there for one another as we spare no effort to safeguard our collective future. End quote. It's a noble sentiment and one that no doubt many, if not most of us, share. But can it hold as job losses mount and the social cost of self-isolation takes its toll? Last year, a former justice of the UK Supreme Court, Lord Sumption, gave the Wreath Lectures on the BBC. In his first lecture, he said, quote, People sometimes speak as if the elimination of risk to life, health, and well-being was an absolute value, but we don't really act on that principle, either in our own lives or in our collective arrangements. Think about road accidents. 
They are, by far, the largest source of accidental physical injury in this country. We could almost completely eliminate them by reviving the Locomotive Act of 1865, which limited the speed of motorized vehicles to four miles an hour in the country and two in towns. Today, we allow faster speeds than that, although we know for certain that it will mean many more people being killed or injured. And we do this because total safety would be too inconvenient. Difficult as it is to say so, hundreds of deaths on the roads and thousands of crippling injuries are thought to be a price worth paying for the ability to get around quicker and more comfortably. So eliminating risk is not an absolute value. It's a question of degree. End quote. Even if Dan Patrick of Texas is an outlier, there's ample precedent for trading off human health and even life against the need for economic and social activity. Our political leaders, from municipal councillors to first ministers, make those choices all the time. To date, however, in the face of COVID-19, those leaders have concluded that the benefits of a lockdown outweigh the costs. Will they continue to do so? To understand how politicians and government officials will answer that question, and the measures that they might take to reboot the economy once the pandemic starts to abate, I spoke with my colleagues Jean Charest, Wayne Waters, and Paul Zed. Jean is a partner in McCarthy Tetro's Montreal office, and Wayne and Paul are senior strategic advisors to the firm and our clients. They're also all former public officials. Jean served in the federal cabinet as leader of the Federal Progressive Conservative Party and as Premier of Quebec. Wayne was clerk of the Privy Council and head of the Federal Public Service, and Paul was an MP and Parliamentary Secretary. We spoke on Thursday, April 16th. Jean, Wayne, Paul, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Let me start with a question asking you all to take a brief jog down memory lane. Each of you has held important positions in government and the legislature, uh, uh, respectively, and now you're watching others hold those same positions and have responsibilities that you once held as a legislator, as a public servant, as a, as a cabinet minister, or as a, a first minister. As you watch them handling the COVID-19 situation, are you envious that you aren't still in those jobs or relieved that you aren't or uh, some combination of the two? Jean, let me start with, start with you. I'm actually, I'm not. I, I watch them do uh, their work, their press conferences every day. And uh, yeah, I, I try to, you know, put a, myself in their shoes of what they would be doing. I think they're all doing fairly well. And I also appreciate the fact that this is a moment of grace uh, for politics, where partisan politics is set aside and everyone focuses on the broader interest of the country. I like that. And I think all of us appreciate that as Canadians, we would want our leaders to uh, work together and hope that our prime minister or premier succeeds. So uh, I, I watch it with some, uh, with, a, with that eye and, uh, and I, I, I hope I wish them the best. Paul, if you were one of the, uh, the MPs now, would you be in the group that was pushing for all of the sittings of parliament to happen virtually or, or would you be insisting on uh, having some skeleton crew of MPs attending in person in the House of Commons to still have the back and forth in the chamber? Well, having been in the House leader's position, I, I understand some of the challenges of uh, the integrity of parliament and 
Having worked specifically in minority governments, though, I can tell you that the prime minister currently being in a minority government is probably relishing the fact that he doesn't have to appear before um, question period every day and going through the rigors of dragging your bills through committees. But, um, you know, like Jean and Wayne, I'm in that camp that admires with great, uh, great envy and uh, the challenges of of living up to uh, the uh, the ideals of making our parliament work. Um, the challenge, of course, on the flip side is you don't have the value of that collaboration, you know, the viewpoints from around the country, if parliament were in session, where you have one of your colleagues whispering in your ear or saying, you know, this particular amendment or that line in a bill isn't quite what it's intended to, or there's some challenges um, as it affects a region of the country. So there's the pluses and the negatives of not being in the same place at the same time. Paul and uh, Jean, both of you mentioned this, and I mean, it's early to talk about silver linings, but but each of you talked about the upside that in our politics, we've seen a real diminution of a lot of the rancor and partisanship that that people have been uh, concerned about increasingly over, over recent years. Do you think that once we return to a situation that looks like normal, that some of that will endure? Do you think this will permanently affect the relationships between politicians, or are we, are we going to return to to, uh, to the sorts of uh, disputations that we're more accustomed to once uh, once things start to recover. Well, well, maybe I can go first. I think we will more rapidly than what most people would appreciate return to what we have experienced in politics and uh, with partisan politics. Now, I'm hoping it won't have this uh, overly partisan edge that people have not appreciated over the last few years. But keep in mind, Adam, this is the very core of our political system. The opposition parties need to play their role. They need to question the government, and they're part of government. The opposition is part of government, Adam. It's just that they're in a specific role. And I'll close with one very helpful example. When the government first presented its first bills, and they were overreached in terms of the powers they were asking for, the opposition parties forced them to back down. And that was a good outcome. It wasn't done in a a partisan way. The government recognized it had gone too far. That speaks to how important it is that the government on a day-to-day basis be questioned on what they're doing, that they have to justify it. So it'll happen, and hopefully it'll happen in in a context that's more constructive than negative. I agree. The challenges, however, of partisanship have um, sort of a new invention. I would call it post the Preston Manning era of the Reform Party, if I can actually pick a a point in time. Um, Prior to that, it used to be kind of like the Montreal Canadiens and the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, There was two teams or in, you know, the, the, the new Democrats were there, but they, they weren't necessarily uh, going to govern. And after the, the game was over, people were very friendly and collaborative. Um, and I think that uh, I, a lot of Canadians are looking to that era of, um, of democracy where good government depends on a strong opposition, but generally um, it isn't these uh, cheap sort of gotcha shots that have come out of the last period of time, both negative and positive, and in actually in all parties now. 
Now, uh, Wayne, like Adrian Clarkson once famously said when she was governor general, you were above politics when you uh, when you worked in government. Uh, do you uh, do you wish that you were still in the clerk's office, or are you grateful not to be trying to lead the entire federal public service from your home office? I, well, I don't know, Adam, if we were above politics. Uh, we definitely our job was to serve politicians. Um, Am I envious? I, I was I, being I was being glib, of course, of course. <laughs> Am I envious that I'm not involved? I, I don't know if it's envy. I think in these times, and I, you know, we are reaching out to our. I am reaching out to my former colleagues, including the clerk, to kind of see how things are going. Because, of course, in these times, that they are they are working twenty four seven to try and serve their ministers and their government to ensure that they have the, the programs and policies in place to address the pandemic. So, um, you know, it's not a question of envy. I think it's a question when, when you know, we've, we spent our careers, or I spent my career, trying to serve governments and Canadians. And in these times of need, you have that sense of duty still there that, you know, should I, can I do something? Is there anything I, I can do to assist or to help? I have that feeling. And, uh, you know, it depends how this will go. Um, I'm sure there will be a role for for many of us, uh, depending how deep this this uh, recession is. So that's how I look at it. Um, we all want to be there and ensure that our Canadians are uh, are appropriately dealt with during this this period of time, and um, that's kind of how I look at it, I guess. Let me stick with the frame of putting you back in the mindset of being in the roles that each of you previously occupied. And Jean, I'll start with you on this. What we've heard in the last couple of weeks in a particularly strong way from President Trump and the U.S. government is the argument that at a certain point, the economic cost of keeping the economy and our society shut down for public health reasons is not going to be justified by the public health benefit of the lockdown measures that are in place. In other words, there's a cost benefit that's going on here where as certainly in the last couple of weeks it has been clear and in Canada there has been consensus that we need to shut everything down because it is crucial to protect our healthcare system and prevent our intensive care units from being overwhelmed and if there's a huge economic cost to pay, it's a price worth paying because we cannot put a, a value on individual human lives. Although for a while now in the United States, there has been rhetoric from individual citizens and from from government officials to say, well, maybe we do have to be willing to pay that price, and the death rate isn't that high, and look at the catastrophe this is causing economically. At what point, if ever, does that kind of conversation come out into the open in Canada? Do do you even think, Jean, that, that our political leaders are weighing those costs and benefits in their mind right now, or are they just going to defer to public health experts and wait until they get the green light to start reopening things? That's a a very big question, Adam, and it's an interesting one to ask in the context of comparing Mr. Trump's uh, approach to Mr. Trudeau's approach. And and let's, you know, if we want to try to define that discussion, and it it is a very legitimate question. It's a real question. At what point do you lock down the economy to great economic cost and other social costs when in fact we have, you know, an annual flu uh, epidemic in there, not epidemic, but a 
an annual flu season in Canada, and we don't close down the economy and ask people to stay home. Only in this case, it's different. It's a new virus. We don't have a vaccine. Uh, there are people who are affected, and we're trying to avoid it spreading to a, a larger group of the population. Now, it seems that from what we see, the Trump administration is more on the side of, well, this has lasted long enough, and the economic costs outweigh the benefits to health. On the Canadian side, I think we're much more cohesive. And what I hear coming from premiers and Prime Minister Trudeau, which I also agree with, is this. If we don't get it right in containing the sanitary issues and the health, it's going to have long-term, mid-term economic consequences that will be much, much bigger. So yes, I think Mr. Trudeau and the premiers are saying, we hear you when the people in the business community or others raise this, but we have come to the conclusion that we need to do everything in our power to really bring this under control. And after that, the economy will, uh, will come back and we'll do what we need to to bring it back. Paul, if you were, uh, if you were an opposition MP uh, and, and having worked in a minority parliament situation, as, as you said, do you think there's going to be a point where the opposition starts raising this issue and starts pushing governments to justify the, uh, the economic cost of continued lockdown measures? Or are we in Canada sufficiently deferential to the views of public health experts that as long as they say, no, no, it's not time yet, there's still a risk? Uh, we're going to leave the economy closed down the way it is now. Well, I, I think Jean makes a very good point that good government matters and that collaboration and relationships are important. Um, the reality is that um, the science and the public health issues as a value for Canadians has uh, an important um, underpinning within the Canadian psyche, I guess, and sort of it's very neighborly, um, and while we watch American news as we're all quarantined, I think most of us um, shun much of the uh, values of, of of economics versus the value of human life. So that's an overriding point of view that I think most of us are are feeling. In terms of specifics to the opposition, I was a little surprised to be candid to hear some of the opposition um, starting to buy into the the bumper sticker, if you will, that the World Health Organization had made some difficult, but nonetheless, um, mistakes that that they are now highlighting. And I think that one of the challenges that Canadians will have is to listen to these disparate forces and try to understand whether it's just cheap partisanship or is in fact it something that really is worth look, listening to. On that point, Jean, and, and I'll bring Wayne into this conversation in a moment, Paul makes a, an interesting point about how the opposition, in, in at least federally, has started to toe the line or, or to nudge up against the line of pushing back on some decisions that the government has made, of criticizing not just measures that are being put in place and being constructive, uh, Jean, as you highlighted in, in reference to some of the, uh, the legislation, trying to improve it, pointing out gaps, but also looking retrospectively and saying, 
saying, well, maybe we could have handled this better. There is an obviously legitimate role for opposition uh, politicians to play a necessary role for them to play in holding governments to account. Do you think that they are going to come to a point where they think that's a, a step worth taking, that their base and that Canadians generally will have an appetite for pointing out where governments might have misstepped or where they might have done things differently? Or are they going to be sufficiently uh, sufficiently uh, intimidated by the prospect of looking like they're sowing discord in the midst of a crisis that, uh, that some of these things will just be let slide? Or is it somewhere between those two extremes? It is, Adam, a very delicate balance, and it's a question of judgment. And tone, tone is key here. And the way it's done, the tone by, by which it's done. You know, when the government presented, and this is already a few weeks ago, it's legislation, the, the opposition did its job and had the government back down from things they were asking for. And yet no one was out there, no one at that time thought they were overstepping the boundaries, that they were being partisan. They just did their job. Now they're at a very delicate moment. And what's happening is that the opposition parties, Adam, are getting pressure from their base saying, well, we're not there, we're not visible. I think they're, and I've been through a number of crises, I've seen them in in, in my time in politics, there will be plenty of time to go at the government and challenge them. I think they, they need to resist the temptation of trying to be visible and resist the temptation, as Paul has pointed out, of mimicking what is being said south of the border, which has always been an issue in Canadian politics, because I don't think it sells here. The WHO line of Mr. Trump does not sell in Canada. And, and you know, anyone with good judgment would think, listen, maybe if the WHO made some mistakes, fine, we'll hold them accountable. But you know what? Right now, the issue isn't uh, the issue is finding a, max, a vaccine and the WHO has a job to do. And we should be, you know, putting some wind in their sails instead of trying to find out what they did wrong. Wayne, if you were uh, if you were in, in the public service still and if you were supporting the prime minister in the cabinet, would you be or how would you approach the, the cost benefit trade-off that we were discussing a moment ago in terms of framing the economic cost of the measures that the government is implementing and ensuring that political decision makers understand the trade-offs that are involved in implementing the lockdown measures that are now in place as opposed to taking a risk on the health front and letting the economy start to reopen. And, and, and as we look forward into the immediate steps that governments are going to have to take, what will the advice look like that they'll be getting from their public servants, their officials, in, in figuring out how to strike that balance? You know, and I, I think this, this issue, uh, even though uh, we all agree that uh, President Trump's position on this has been untenable about Putting this out there that there is that this trade-off and we need to move now. I don't think anybody's saying that. But you know, the situation here in the United States compared to Canada, I think is very different when we talk about this trade-off between protecting people's health and getting the economy going again. Because there is a point in time, I think, in the US, because of the fact they don't have the same social net safety net as in Canada, they don't have universal health care. Uh, and they have a, uh, a, uh, a stimulus package they put in place that's largely focused on business, not supporting individuals to keep their head above water. Uh, the longer that goes in the United States, people will really fall through the cracks and nothing to fall back on. And when you are unemployed and you have no income coming in, 
the you know the social unrest and the whole uh, outcome of that situation can be very dramatic and can lead to its own um, mortality rates if it's if it's extended. So I think in Canada, um, fortunately, I think our so social safety net is a bit stronger. We still have people falling through the cracks. Our First Nations communities, I think, are having a lot of difficulty right now, for example. But I think there is an opportunity to perhaps stretch the period of time by which we uh, ensure that the health of Canadians are protected, that we've, we've secured that a bit longer, uh, and then turn to the economy. So I do think when we hear this debate, as we all, as, as uh, I think Paul said, we're all listening to uh, American television and CNN and the starkness of this and the unacceptability, I think it may be a, a bit of a different challenge for us. So I think in Canada, I think our officials, uh, our public service is providing the right advice. We've got time to worry about the economy. Let's get through this and get people safe and figure out a way how people can go back to work and still feel safe or participate in their communities. That's going to be the to me, then the first major challenge will be allowing people to go back to work uh, and still feel safe. So I, I think I do think it's different here in Canada. Let me take up the issue of the economy, use some of the time that we have to figure out what is going to happen next, and, and ask you, Wayne, when governments are looking out across the country now, across their respective jurisdictions, and they are looking at the economic data that is coming back, which really is quite bleak, what are their primary concerns, and what are the policy levers that they are looking to pull in the very immediate term in order to start to address or mitigate the impact of the economic fallout of this pandemic, even as their focus rightly remains on controlling the spread of the virus and, and the public health measures that we've talked about? Well, you know, this week, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, came out with its forecast, its assessment, and said this is the, the crisis like no other. Um, it's worse in 100 years. Um, they are predicting GDP to shrink by 3%. You know, when we looked at that deep recession in 2008, global GDP declined by 0.01%. This is a 3% drop. So the, the drop, and in Canada, we're going to see a decline in GDP in the 6 to 7% range this year. So the drop in our economy has just, it's unprecedented. And so, therefore, the challenge to restart the economy is going to be uh, unlike anything we've seen for many, many years since the Great Depression. So, I, as I said, I think the first, the first uh, challenge will be is, is on the public safety side get, when people go back to work. You know, how are we going to do that? Uh, what, what mechanisms do we have? We've learned something. As we shut down the economy, and when it comes back, social distancing is still going to be have to, will have to be there for for certain activities. I think testing uh, of individuals is going to be critical. So those are, I think, some immediate things that will have to be considered. And I know uh, public servants are thinking about this now. I think, though, the other area, because it's this has been a uh, a recession as a result of a health. Uh, uh, as a result of the pandemic. So therefore, people have had to stay home. The production of goods and services has dropped uh, like we've never seen it before as well. 
And so I think one of the key things that we have to look at, which we didn't have to look at in 2008, is as production has ceased, all our supply chains are seriously are disrupted. I shouldn't use the word serious in all cases. Some will come back quickly. Others, though, could be severely disrupted. And so when you look at the traditional stimulus packages that we put in place previously, like in 2008, we all talk about infrastructure or social housing, um, these kind of projects, I think you've got to look behind those now and say, well, if the construction sector, are they going to be ready to go? Uh, will the social housing contractors be, will, will, that, will that supply chain be there? Are those subcontractors going to be able to gear up or are they gone? Are they bankrupt? So I, I think there's the, 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 ec the reasons for this economic downturn are different and therefore the response will have to be different. And I, and I know this is what um, officials are looking at now. Really two things. What can be done immediately? I think we used to call them shovel-ready projects. So they're looking at lists, pulling those lists together. And then what can we also do to perhaps take advantage of this, particularly our, the economy is going to be different coming out of this, and so are there other things that we can do? You know, a lot of people are talking about shortening the supply chain for medical equipment, for drugs. Should we be looking at creating those kind of opportunities in Canada? So I think a lot of traditional kind of infrastructure and other spending but other, but other, I would say, new ways to get at responding to this recession. And because it's so deep, um, and because of those supply chain disruptions, it may take a lot longer to have this economy rebound. You know, that V versus U versus L. Well, I'm in the U side. Uh, I think it's, it's, it, this is going to be a challenge to bring this economy back. Paul, when, when we get to the point of starting to reboot the economy, and we're past the, the acute stage of the public health crisis. What do you expect the immediate measures uh, that governments will be looking at and that, that politicians and, and legislators will be calling for in terms of getting the economy starting to move again, getting up the other side of the U that Wayne just described? Well, I think as Wayne has said, working from home, moving from working from home to ensuring that health protection is paramount for the workforce is going to be critical. So we've all seen the new innovations for Canadian companies and the innovation within the uh, venture capital gig economy community um, that is going to be different than what sort of is coming out of California with Apple and Google will be a critical piece of that. Um, the next obvious one is, as Wayne also mentioned, the infrastructure funds that are being allocated. We saw Minister McKenna uh, announce yesterday that they're looking for those shovel-ready projects throughout the country. And those are the things that uh, our firm McCarthy's is going to be participating in across Canada. But lastly, I also don't want to ignore the fishing, aquaculture, agricultural community, uh, some of the challenges that are in those communities. Uh, which impact what I would call rural Canada. And of course, let's not forget the issue that government is going to have to deal with, which is students. We have over 2 million students across Canada that are just leaving post-secondary education or entering post-secondary education. They don't have jobs, obviously, now as a result 
of this pandemic, and they will need some assistance, and the universities themselves will need some assistance to, uh, to help onboarding that important area. Jean, Wayne mentioned some of the potential longer-term implications of uh, of this recovery and things like shortening the supply chain, looking at things that, that Canada should start to do domestically that previously we've relied on long supply chains that cross many borders in order to supply ourselves with. And we've seen recently issues of getting access to personal protective equipment that have been imported or would have been imported from other countries getting held up at the border and so forth. Are there opportunities the governments are going to be looking to seize as they chart our course in rebooting the economy? And what are some of the the longer-term economic policy implications that you foresee as we look beyond the public health crisis? Well, as we look at things now, keep in mind we're we're going to experience three different periods, Adam. The first one is the one in which we are now, we call it the lockdown period, in which the economy stopped and we're locked down and confined. And then we are now, as we speak, considering, and governments are considering the second period, which is the reopening of the economy. And you can call that period the post-lockdown pre-vaccine period, which is going to be an accordion-like uh, progress in the economy going up and down. Security issues that Wayne Rent mentioned are going to be prominent. You know, Can I go back to work and be uh, safe uh, from a health point of view? And then there's the third period, will, which will be the post-vaccine period, which will bring us back to where we were in as much as that's possible. What will governments look at in changes? I put them now in three categories. There will be changes to the healthcare systems in Canada and the world. There will be great lessons drawn from what's happening here, including supply chains and the ability and capacity to have, as a national security issue, access to the minimum uh, level uh, uh, equipment that we need in case of a pandemic or other crisis. That includes masks, but it also includes pharmaceuticals, drugs, and those kind of things. The second area I think where we can expect changes will be, as Paul mentioned, in the gig economy and uh, and what we should be doing to take uh, draw lessons from what we've just seen. Uh, 5G will be part of that, and infrastructure spending will be a big uh, a big part of that. And I think the third part will be energy for Canada. There'll be a broad debate about energy because we still want to transition towards carbon-free, a carbon-free economy. But we have to take into account the specific situation of Alberta, Newfoundland, Labrador, and Saskatchewan. And that's an area in which the governments will have a lot of work to do. Well, as they continue to do that work, I hope that we can turn to the three of you again for your insights. Thank you once again for your time, and we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Bye-bye. Jean Charest is a partner in McCarthy Tatro's Montreal office, and Wayne Waters and Paul Zed are senior strategic advisors to the firm and our clients. This has been Episode 11 of Law in the Time of COVID-19. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. We also hope you'll send us your suggestions for future episodes. We want to talk about what you want to hear about. You can reach me on Twitter at, at Adam Goldenberg or by email at agoldenberg at mccarthy.ca. Pour plus de contenu de McCarthy Tetro, ne manquez pas notre balado, Le droit au temps de la COVID-19, animé par ma collègue Christelle Chevalier. This episode was produced by Samantha Chown, Catherine Cleon, Chloe Thomas, and Pippa Leslie. 
Our researchers are Laura Alford, Brittany Serqua, Yonita Kukio, Pippa Leslie, Solomon McKenzie, and Chris Pushkash. Special thanks to Lara Nathans, Trevor Lawson, Judith McKay, Elizabeth Burks, Ali Adams, Tommy Barbieri, Kathleen Hogan, Taryn Hunter, Andrea Watson, Matilda Kramertz, Miriam Vega, and the entire team here at McCarthy Tetro. Not literally here, of course, but you know what I mean. Make sure you check out our firm's COVID-19 hub, which you can reach from the main page of our website at www.mccarthy.ca. This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. Thanks for listening, and please wash your hands.